truths. How long could we talk about or preach on or study the subject of truth? Isn't it interesting how truth is something that in our present culture is fluid? It's not seen as objective, but rather as subjective. Truth that is determined circumstantially rather than principle. Truth that doesn't always seem to be the same today as it was yesterday or years before or as we imagined what it will be in the future. When your truth is a moving target, then you're constantly looking for better aim and it usually doesn't come. Truth from the perspective of God's word is fixed. It's always the same. Never changes. God has said repeatedly, I am the same today, yesterday, forever. And so the question isn't whether or not truth is a reality that we can objectively rely on in every age and in all circumstances, but rather it is a question of whether or not we will. Jesus speaks to us with great clarity in the Gospel of John regarding truth. And he'll have more to say. He's already said a great deal. He'll have more to say as we continue our study in this Gospel. But today's passage brings us to a very familiar passage which providentially lands on a day where we often think of freedom. Let me read something to you that I read this week in preparation for the message. D.A. Carson is a well-respected theologian who's written extensively, and many of us rely on him for his insight and wisdom, but also his brilliant and inspired communication. He says, true freedom is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. It is genuine liberty because doing what we ought now pleases us. Are we pleased to do what we ought? Or do we only want to do whatever we want? The ability to bring together a clear understanding of biblical freedom will always be dependent on the ability and willingness of the believer to stand firmly in biblical truth. Truth and freedom can never be disconnected, lest both fail. But truth is meaningless if it remains principle only. 
if all we have are doctrinal truths or principled truths that we point to, and we do not have any application of truth in the way we think, in the words we speak, and in the lives that we live, then truth is irrelevant. It isn't what we say we believe. It is, in fact, what we do with that belief. It isn't how we hold to a principle, it is how that principle transforms and shapes every part of our lives. So today's message from John chapter 8 and verses 31 through 59, and yes, it is a very long passage, is about truth, but it's about truth applied How do we apply the truths that we learn from Christ? Truth applied teaches us several things. Number one, it teaches us that truth abides. It remains. It continues. In verses 31 through 38, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen my father, seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Truth abides. The word abide will appear numerous times in the Gospel of John. It is a favorite theme. He is interested not just in what you say. He's interested in what sticks. And so truth that sticks and stays in the heart and the life of the believer is the focus and the attention of what we're really talking about here. Truth that is going to abide regardless of those circumstances, regardless of those experiences, good, bad, and otherwise, regardless of the influence from without or from the inclination from within. Truth that abides is that which continues to grow in the life of the believer and leads to greater transformation and more and more Christ-likeness. Truth that is manifested in the life of the believer is something that must not be compromised nor set aside. Abiding truth is truth that will always be present regardless of whatever else may be going on at any given moment. Truth abides. He says, if you remain. When he spoke to them, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Now, who's he talking to? He's talking to the same people in the previous chapter or in the previous verses who said that in the midst of the debate between Jesus and the Jews that many believed. I even made it a point of the sermon last week. But I also told you that we really don't know much about the nature of this belief. Now we do. 
In the very next word, Jesus says to those who have believed, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, not because you say you believe. It has to be more than that. It has to be evidenced by an abiding reality of the presence of God in the life of the believer. Today, we find in ourselves, especially in the world of Christianity, faced with a dilemma in which this easy believism is being put forth in a way that does not produce the kind of biblical transformation to which all believers are called. In other words, the world wants to hear a message of faith. They want to hear about God. I even heard one, I read an article just a day ago. And in that article, the pastor of one of the largest churches in the country said that if God doesn't bless you because of the gifts that you give financially, the church will reimburse them. I want you to know that deal doesn't stand here. <laughs> So don't, if you read the article, you hear the news reports, don't think that applies to everybody. What is he saying? He's saying that God owes you. If you give, God owes you. The result of your gift is not the point of the gift. If you only want a result, it's not a gift at all. It's not a sacrifice at all. If you give money to the church or you give your time and service to the Lord or if you give of yourself in a way that you believe is going to yield some sort of result and you expect and demand that result and then when you don't get it, you refuse to give anymore, then you have lost and missed the whole point of biblical obedience. Obedience has nothing to do with results. It is in and of itself its own result. We do not serve because God does this or that. It isn't a quid pro quo arrangement. And he owes us nothing. He has given us everything. If you abide in my word, then you're true disciples. We have to be more than this surface Christianity that knows nothing of biblical sacrifice and abiding truth. The result of abiding in the word is then, he says, you will know the truth. The truth becomes clear. How? Through abiding in the word. The more time we spend in God's word, the more time we give ourselves to the word, and the more time that word is applied in our lives, the greater understanding we have of what it means to truly be free from the tyranny of sin. Jesus wasn't talking about freedom as we often interpret it. Remember that the nation of Israel at the time Jesus is proclaiming his kingdom is under the rule of Rome. It is interesting, later on they're going to say, we've never been enslaved to anybody. Why do you say we need freedom? And it's because of their ignorance. How many times has the nation of Israel been enslaved? How many times has the nation of Israel been deported? How many times have they been subjugated to greater powers and authorities as a result of their sinfulness or judgment from God or whatever it may have been? And now they find themselves subjected also to Rome. Eventually they will be dispersed and the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem will cease 
it will cease. For hundreds and hundreds of years, there will no longer be a national entity of Israel. There will be the people of God, covenant people, but not as a nation. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the kind of freedom that sets us free, not from the, the political domination of another country or from the oppressive regimes that often rise within them, but rather we are talking about freedom from the sinfulness that would otherwise subject us to a tyranny and result in eternal death and separation. They deferred to their dependence on their relationship with Abraham and the religion they had constructed in order to shield themselves from the truth. It's no different than people saying, well, I don't need to hear the gospel, I'm a Christian. And yet in their lives, there's no evidence of genuine faith. There's no truth to that statement. Jesus clarified that we are all sinners. And as a result, we do not belong to the household of God. We are slaves to sin. But he goes on and he says that a slave can be freed from a household, but only by a member of that household. And when the slave is freed from the household, he changes his status from slave to family member. Whoever the son sets free, the son of the household, he's free indeed. You see, what Jesus was trying to help them to understand and what he continues to remind us of today is that when we trust in him by faith, we are set free from the tyranny of sin. And in so doing, sins are not only forgiven, but righteousness is declared. And we go from being on the outside, separated, strangers and aliens to God, to being children of God. We become members of his household. And it is in that household that we understand what genuine freedom really is. True freedom, then, as Carson reminded us, is not the liberty to do anything we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And now, having been delivered from sinfulness, this genuine liberty that allows us to do what we ought also pleases us. We find joy and satisfaction and peace in a relationship as members of the household of God. Truth abides. Secondly, truth obeys. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Jesus is building up that last phrase, you're doing the works your father did. He is making inferences to something that he's about to state outright, but he hasn't done it yet. 
Now keep in mind that the debate between the religious leaders and those who are opposing Jesus has been building along the way. Numerous times already in John's gospel, we have seen efforts on the part of the leadership to kill him or to get rid of him or to put him in prison. All of them have failed. Each time, though, there is a renewed effort and there is greater energy. In fact, the only thing that is holding this at bay is not the popularity of Jesus among the common folk, nor is it any other external influence. It is that God hasn't declared it yet. So keep in mind that everything that Jesus is doing is being done according to the agenda of the will of God. Nothing, nothing can thwart that. Nothing can derail it. Nothing can cut it short. If that is true in this situation, it is true in every situation. Remember what we talked about with truth. So that I believe that, that while there are always those forces that will seek to subvert or to silence the gospel... It will never happen. Why? Because the very gates of hell will never prevail against his church. I'm trying, I write notes not because I need information to remember, but because it keeps me on track and I don't run away in the wrong direction. The Jews claim that Abraham's their father. Uh, as if that would overcome their unbelief. It's like when somebody says to a person, are you a Christian? And they reply, I'm a Baptist. That's not the question. Are you a believer in Jesus? I go to Temple Baptist Church. Not the question. The answer has nothing to do with that. In fact, when we defer to something other than genuine faith in Jesus Christ, we are declaring that we are uncomfortable with the question, and this is a way to defer it or to deflect it to something else. Jesus argues if they really were the children of Abraham, they would do the works of faith that Abraham did. But they didn't, and they weren't. Truth obeys. Truth is obedient so that it does what faith demands. Remember what Abraham, the story of Abraham, he wasn't perfect and he had his moments where he faltered, certainly. But as the story begins, God called him from Ur of the Chaldees and he said, go to the land that I will show you. And the Bible tells us that he gathered up everything and he left, even though he didn't know where he was going. Over and over we see the faith of Abraham on display, but always it is measured and understood through the standard of his obedience. If he had been told to take his only son, Isaac, and sacrifice him on an altar, and he had then waited, or he had said he would, but didn't, it would have been meaningless. But he did. He trusted God. I think Abraham believed that God had the ability to resurrect his son, and that's how this was going to go. But once he was there, and he was prepared to take his son's life, the Bible tells us that in that obedience, God stopped him and provided what? A lamb. He provided a ram in the bushes for the sacrifice, a substitute. Jesus is that substitute. 
but we would never have known of the greatness of the faith of Abraham, which God said was reckoned unto him for righteousness, had he not been obedient. Obedience is ultimately the true measure of genuine faith. They would do the works that Abraham did. Abraham believed God. His faith is demonstrated in his obedience. Truth obeys. Truth loves. Look at verse 41, the latter part of the verse. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. He says, you are of, the, of your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, but he, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Truth loves. The debate shifts as the Jews claim God is their father. Every argument is nothing more than a deflection from the reality of their own lostness. It is easy to claim to believe in God, but the real test is what we do in response to Jesus. If you believe God, then he says you would love Jesus. Jesus said if you know the Father and you know him as your heavenly Father, then you will love the Son. Yet they hated Jesus and couldn't wait to murder him. They were driven by something other than true faith. Their faith was nothing more than a false masquerade of ugly darkness built on lies and violence. What do we take from that? Have you ever talked to somebody, a friend, a family member about your faith? Maybe shared your testimony of how Jesus changed your life and then it gets a little bit awkward sometimes in those conversations and the person really doesn't know how to respond or isn't ready to do so truthfully. And so they'll say, well, you know, I, I believe in God. And I don't mean to belittle that. I mean, it's a good starting point. I'm, I'm, that's not my point. My point is it's not enough. Jesus said that the demons believe and they tremble. That doesn't make them Christians. What we're reminded of in this particular interaction that takes place between Jesus and the Jews is that they are claiming a belief in God that is not consistent with love for Christ. If you believe God, you will love Jesus. But think about it a different way. Instead of hearing it the way I'm saying it now, think about it like this. If you believe in God, you get to love Jesus. It's not something you have to do. It's something you get to do. Love for God and love for Christ will always go hand in hand. And it is in the context of a loving relationship that we experience the abundance of grace that comes only from him. 
But if a person does not love God and does not love the Son, <clears throat> what is he under the control of? He's under the control of Satan. Jesus accuses them of being children of Satan because of their lies and their murderous intent. The blindness of sin prevents the light of true faith from shining brightly. What are we to be about? The church is about bringing light in the darkness. We live in a world that is dark. It's been dark since its beginning. Sin has darkened it to the point that people do not see the truth and therefore do not know it nor love it. As a result, we look for all other kinds of explanations and what we end up doing is we just create our own standards of truth. Every generation, every culture has done that and continues to do it and will continue to do it. We can declare it to be true. We can legalize or legislate it. We can make it even a requirement. We can do all kinds of things and it's still a lie. And it is born out of the pit of hell itself. It is fostered and originates with the father of lies, Satan himself. And when you stand against the lie, what does he do? The only thing he can, he's got to kill you. Satan has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's always been what he's about. God told Adam and Eve, if you disobey, what will happen? You'll die. They did. When they sinned, their spirits died. Ultimately, their bodies as well. Neither was supposed to happen. When Jesus comes again, not only will you live, your body will live in eternal glory and your spirit will live in an eternal power that we have never known in this life. This is our hope. Yes, this is our promise. Truth loves Jesus. Fourth, truth listens, verses 46 and 47 which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Truth listens. The Jews cannot condemn Jesus for any sin. So why do they not believe him? They don't believe him because they don't hear him. They're not listening the one who listens or hears the words of God is more than the one who just has sound in their auditory system. But rather it is the person that receives that. It is a joy to the soul and it is transformation to the life and the perspective. Everything about listening to the word of God, listening to the voice of Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit is about embracing and receiving and becoming and changing. Truth listens. And fifth, truth perseveres. Look at verses 48 through 59, the end of the chapter. <clears throat> the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. 
Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Truth perseveres. The Jews stoop again to name calling. You have a demon and you're a Samaritan. It's like saying you're stupid and you're ugly. It's just childish and, and immature. <clears throat> it, it's, it's the ridiculous response of desperation. They've exhausted every argument. They have failed in every attempt and they now find themselves with nothing more to offer. And so the best they can do is name calling. They've already challenged his heritage. They've referred to him as an illegitimate child. And now they call him a Samaritan, which is a prejudicial view of people they consider to be of less value. How can anyone who holds standards like that, that are so contrary to the will and word of God, pronounce condemnation on anyone else? And yet that is exactly what they do. But Jesus is not thwarted. He counters by relying on the righteous judgment of God. Continuing in the word of God, he says, will bring everlasting life. The believer never dies. The preserving power of salvation assures the believer that death is defeated and holds no power over the one who trusts in Christ. The Jews still are bound to the limits of a fallen material world, so they do not understand the offer of life that Jesus is extending. They give examples of godly servants like Abraham and the prophets who have died without regard for the reality that those same people are alive even forevermore. It is remarkable that they would even speak such words of obvious ignorance that know nothing of the depth of genuine faith. And yet this is what desperation always does. How does the believer Stand for the truth until such things are exposed. The Bible tells us that we are to put on the full armor of God. And when we have done all of that in order to prepare ourselves for the spiritual challenges of this life, what are we to do? Stand. That's it. 
just stand. Refuse to yield. Refuse to run. Refuse to fight. The battle belongs to the Lord and the victory is already ours. On this 4th of July week, we often talk about liberty, freedom, and the principles that led to the foundation of our nation. In some regard, depending on who's interpreting the narrative, those things certainly are true. We live in a world that is a country that is more prosperous than any in human history. We want for nothing, we lack for nothing. I told the men's group on Wednesday that I spoke to a man last week, or maybe it was the group Wednesday night, I lose track, that I visited with a man from Poland, and he was telling me that he'd been in this country for 23 years and that he really loved it. He and his wife, he said, we go to work every day, and he said, we work a lot. And he said, and then we can, we can buy what we want. I said, do you have family in Poland? He said, I do. And he had sadness on his face. He said, they're hurting. He said, conditions there are bad. He said, we work every day, seven days a week in Poland, just to put food on the table. He said, if we want to buy gasoline for the automobile in the event that you actually own one, the price is 8 to $9 a gallon. He said, we can barely pay for rent. He said, the conditions are deplorable. And he said, he said, it's difficult. I said, you know, it's interesting to me. I said, you spoke of the joyfulness that you have living in this country with all that it brings. And yet you speak of your homeland and your family with such sadness. I said, do you feel guilty living in America? He said, sometimes I do. And I thought about how most of us who've been born and raised here don't feel guilty. We feel entitled. Freedom is not found in prosperity. Freedom is not born out of the ability to do whatever you want or to say whatever you want. Freedom has nothing to do with whether or not you're armed or you aren't. Freedom doesn't have anything to do with how we control the processes and the purposes. Genuine freedom can never, ever be known. Even if all of those other things are present, it can never be known if we live in the nation who historically has experienced the greatest freedom the world has ever known, and yet we are still slaves to sin. I'm not anti-American. I am pro. The one day I'm always red, white, and blue. I am not ungrateful, nor do I have anything but the highest regard for those who have served our nation. Whether it be in government leadership or our military, 
I believe in all of those things. But I do not see those things as a privilege, nor do I see them as what we are entitled. I see them as grace that is given to us with a great and weighty responsibility. And that responsibility is squandered when we use it in order to gain more for ourselves without ever realizing it has provided us a means whereby we may extend that which is most important to all the rest of this world that is lost. I am as guilty as everyone else. But just because we haven't done it well yet doesn't mean we should be satisfied. He who abides in the word will be the disciple of Jesus, will love Jesus, will listen to Jesus and will persevere by the power of Jesus so that we are enabled with a message of hope and promise and eternal life. So that even for those who live in the midst of the least, who have no say over the government that rules them or the circumstances that control them, even those who are enslaved can still be free. That's what true freedom is. And it comes only through faith 